0: Greetings, this is Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Welcome to our podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Brian Boggs, designer and chairmaker. Good morning, Brian.
1: Good morning, Gary. Good to be with you today.
0: Well, you've been at it now for how long? How long have you been making chairs?
1: 36 years, I believe.
0: Good Lord, you youngster.
1: Um...
0: Things have changed a little bit in the landscape. You're in Asheville, North Carolina now, is that right?
1: I am. We moved here, or I moved here about 10 years ago Uh uh, when the economy slowed things down enough to make it a lot easier to move my business. Right. And fumbled around a while till I got my feet uh, on the ground, was able to share a shop with a former student, Billy McLean, and uh, start slowly in Asheville and gradually move everything down here when we got a big enough shop. But it's, it, you know, no transition for a company is going to be super smooth, I don't think.
0: No, but yeah.
1: this went relatively well. I was real disappointed at how long it took to get momentum back, but I think that had more to do with the economy than anything else. But uh, it was a good move overall. I'm real happy to be here.
0: So, Asheville is a craft center. Can we call it that? Are there other craftspeople there? Or?
1: There are a lot of other craftspeople here, woodworkers, potters. Uh, there are a lot of artists, painters, uh, and you know, mixed-media artists of all types. And there are arts organizations here. One of the largest uh, guilds in the country, the Southern Highlands Handcraft Guild, uh, is here. The Center for Crafts, Creativity, and Design is here. Excuse me, they've changed their name now. I can't remember the new name. But anyway, it's a, it's a hotbed for not only craftspeople, but entrepreneurs of Interesting independent businesses, and there's a lot of support in town through organizations like Mountain BizWorks for anybody doing something creative or interesting to turn it into a business. Uh-huh. So, in a lot of ways, there's there's a support network here that I have never experienced, or certainly never got that anywhere in Kentucky. Uh-huh. So it's a it is a great place to be. On the on the flip side. Because it's a great place to be, everybody wants to be here, and that means right. they're fighting for houses, and right. that means real estate problems. Right, so right. that's that's driving wages up. It's driving you know rent for a shop up, and putting a lot of pressure on. Not just making more stuff, but it drives the kind of business that's going to survive here. In other words, how do you not just design furniture now, but how do you design a business that can fit into a higher real estate value?
0: Right, right. And you came from Berea, Kentucky, another craft center.
1: Is that right? It was. In fact, it was labeled officially the craft center of Kentucky, the craft capital of Kentucky, I think back in the 90s. And, you know, there was some support there. We had our local Cabrera Crafts Persons Association, I think was what it was called. And, you know, for quite a while, it was a mutually supportive group of craftspeople that were pretty organized at, you know, putting a group brochure together and trying to get the city's attention to our community and uh, have some events. Try to, you know, we were politically involved somewhat, but that fizzled. And, you know, when I started woodworking there, they were – more than a dozen woodworkers professionally in the area mm-hmm. and through moving away or or you know dying or going out of business it dwindled down to about three of us kelly mayer warren may and myself oh there was doug haley as well so four of us
0: uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: and you know and then kelly sold his shop to the library to the city for the library and set up the school so he wasn't producing Publicly anymore. And that meant three of us producing craftsmen. So just the, the momentum started to really wane uh-huh. and it just wasn't the same anymore. Uh, business was still pretty good up until 2009, but the community of craft w- wasn't the same. Now I, I understand from recent visits there that that has shifted back to positives. There's a much more vibrant uh, community there again. Uh-huh. So, um, but I, I love it here. I'm not going back. It's This is a much Better fit for me.
0: Well, it it uh, raises the question about young people getting started, getting started in business, and whether to take on uh, overhead or start an apprenticeship. Uh, What are what are the options? Do you think?
1: I think taking on overhead would be the last thing to do. Apprenticeships are potentially good. You know, working with a, a master craftsman can give you a perspective. And the world of woodworking is is enormous, and I honestly believe unlimited mm-hmm. in the number of avenues you could pursue, things you can make, or styles you can develop for yourself. And you're going to get one perspective if you when you apprentice to an individual. Right. Learning on your own, you know, there's books, there's a lot of YouTube stuff, of course, there's a lot of crap on YouTube as well, but... I think with starting out now there's there's a lot to be said for focused time with a simple toolkit in your garage or basement. And I think that one of the things that really helped me a lot was <laughs> the simplicity of my start, which was Greenwood chair making, you know, starting out with $50 with the tools in the backyard. And while there were certain obstacles to my development because of financial reasons, but the focus of greenwood chair-making allowed me to explore in depth what wood was, how it behaves, and, you know, both to moisture changes and to tool cutting and uh, the structural integrity of wood and how to judge a log, you know, whether it's going to split out well, does it have straight grain or is it going to be gnarly to work with? And those things are still what drive everything I think about in designing and working with wood. And that's really hard to get from any school or any apprenticeship. I think that just requires focused time alone with the material from a scientific exploration perspective. Uh And I think that's, what's not happening very much at all. That's certainly not pushed on YouTube Uh, Anything I've seen on YouTube, it's not really pushed much, even in the schools that I've taught at, not the level of intense focus on the material. What's happening in the design world from what I can see is there's a lot of playful and creative work being put out there. But it doesn't seem that there's a lot of attempts at rethinking or thinking freshly about wood as a material and how it might be worked today differently than than historically. And while that's right. not what an apprentice is going to be looking at, what an apprentice is going to be doing is building a foundation of understanding tools and materials in a way that wood's limitations can be explored in a manner that's meaningful and can really get you somewhere solid. If you don't have that grounded understanding of the tools and materials then you can't just jump into cnc production and do something that's going to make sense from that perspective mm-hmm. with that perspective there's no limit at which way you can go whether you you know go with the you know mortise and tenon magazine direction and stick with hand tools alone and that's a wonderful place to be or you don't touch the wood at all and you go entirely into designing for cnc manufacturing I think that grounded understanding of the material, what it feels like and what its structural integrity is and how to judge the material has got to be had from a direct experience of it and not just experience of it, but experience of it from a constant questioning, what am I handling here? Is your focus then on design
0: or engineering or uh, self-education?
1: Uh, which you the public you or Brian boggs uh, I think that the someone just started out if the focus is learning all the time and your your brain is open, you know you 're being present to what 's in front of you, your direction is going to be impacted by that as a woodworker it doesn 't matter if you 're following plans that you 've downloaded or following instructions in an article or doing what you're Uh, boss is telling you to do you're constantly having to make decisions and judgments Mm -hmm. and those decisions and judgments are based on what you think you're doing or what you think you're working on and the the pattern with human beings is whatever you're doing is you're trying to create a comfort zone or a place where you feel safe. And you do that by coming to conclusions about what this material is so that you can base your decisions on that conclusive foundation instead of continuing to pay attention and gather data and, and don't expect the material to not surprise you. Mm -hmm. What about your approach now
0: is different than when you started?
1: My techniques are radically different. My approach is the same.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And it's because my approach is the same I, and my what I've learned, the techniques that I'm able to work with continue to broaden. And the materials I'm working with are broadening somewhat. I'm able to make decisions and design from a broader foundation and think with a broader bandwidth because of my understanding of the materials and mastery of the tools. And so what's happening is it's like the, the channel for learning is bigger. And my learning curve, the, the, the amount of learning I'm doing now is faster and broader than when I started out. And when I started out, I felt overwhelmed about what I was trying to learn, but I was I didn't know anything, and so I didn't have a very big foundation to build from. Right. So now right. that that foundation is broader, I'm able to explore things and, and you know, manage, manage the guys in the back and design something that's using completely different thinking than I've ever designed before. Yeah. And that's because I haven't changed that um, kindergarten approach mm-hmm. to what I'm looking at.
0: Yeah, curiosity is such an important part of design and engineering. And I think it's fascinating that you bring up the, the idea that you're you're still doing it now after how many years? 30? 30, 30
1: 36. 36. 36 years? 37. It's almost 37. It's 37 years. Something like that. Anyway, I started in <laughs> 82. You do the math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting how
0: uh, the more you do it, the more there is, it seems, to learn. And you can do it as you say, from a better perspective, a uh, broader perspective, you've got a bigger foundation to stand on, uh, to learn from. Yeah,
1: I think that's it. There, there always was the same amount to learn, and that's an infinite amount. But there's a, there is a broader spectrum to perceive through the more experience you have with an open mind. I, I, I also have met woodworkers that have been doing it longer than I have. That stopped learning a long time ago. And that's really a shame.
0: Sure. Well, let's get people up to speed a little bit. You started making green wood chairs. So this, these are chairs that were bent. They had bent parts or?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was buying logs, splitting thing, everything out and shading it uh, to shape, drying it, following John Alexander's book, uh, Make a Chair from a Tree. Mm hmm that was my entry because that was the cheapest Avenue to start woodworking in unless you're just spoon making, but you know, this is spoon making and then you glue the parts together. Right, but right. Uh, you know, John's book excited me in a way that, the, that, that book, which I read first, Crenhal's uh, fun out of cabinet making. And then uh, the, um, Oh, there's another one that I read of his, but the impractical cabinet maker, I think it was, but Alexander's approach was simple enough for me to grab onto, and I loved the fact that I could you know just take a tree and go from there so yeah that I did about uh, three hundred chairs before I bought a tool that plugged in
0: <laughs> and so you were doing uh, winter chairs then or ladderbacks or what what kind I, was,
1: of I was making ladderbacks then, and then in about three years in. Uh, I had been reading about what Drew Langser was doing at country workshops and wanting to take a class there and hearing that Dave Sawyer in Vermont was the guy uh, making Greenwood uh, ladderback chairs. By the time I got to where I could afford to go apprentice with him, he had moved on to Windsor's and I did not lose my enthusiasm for, you know, apprenticing with him. So I said, "Well, heck, I'll, I'll learn anything Dave wants to teach me." So I went up and and learned how to make Windsor chairs, and it was really a transformative experience. And I don't really understand it still, but I didn't make Windsor chairs very long. I had to come home after that two week, two and a half week stint with Dave, and get back to filling my orders. And for some reason, I was making chair ladderbacks in half the time I was before. And we never even talked about ladder back chairs at Dave's and I don't know what it was that I absorbed in that experience that changed the way I worked. I, I, I could just never put a, a nail in it, but it was pretty amazing to go through that. You know, I stopped making Windsor's after about a year mm-hmm. just because it was too many parts and pieces of a business to run uh, making ladderbacks and Windsors. I couldn't get enough workflow and I had to have too many different kinds of material laying around.
0: The ladderbacks are made of a single material then? Not
1: (laughs) usually. I was starting out with material uh, or excuse me, with with hickory as material, both uh, legs and rungs. And that's because I just happened upon a phenomenal deal with uh, buying two logs. They were both 32 feet long. Wow twenty four inches in diameter 24 to 25 inches in diameter, three fifty year old hickories oh. that were just straight as a gun barrel and you could split them out that size hickory split out easily because it was old growth straight grain stuff right. and I ruined most of it because I didn't know how oh. to drive wood' oh my God. Was just criminal oh no. but so that's why I started out with hickory uh, with for everything it was uh, it was cheap I got it for what what amounted to 10, 10 cents a board foot, and I didn't have to pay the guy until I started making money making chairs. Well, so, well. Uh, But ideally, greenwood chairs are made with, I think, uh, soft maple legs and hickory rungs is the best combination uh-huh. Uh-huh. for a long-term joint.
0: You've been inventing things or redesigning things or reinventing, I'm not sure how you want to put it, uh, for a long time now. There's It's a long list, uh, so... You reinvented the shave horse. Uh, you redesigned the spoke shave. You have your own way of sharpening uh, drill bits, uh, a bark splitter. How, what else? What else have you come up a, with? T-
1: a tenon cutting <laughs> machine uh, that I've built a few iterations of. The most recent one I built last, about a year and a half ago is. Uh, the biggest game changer for us of all the machines i've built uh, uh-huh. the bark splitting machine that i built several years ago we no longer use i'm not making bark seats anymore mm-hmm. but it's sitting in its own little personal museum in the shop the tenon cutter is a tool i used many many years ago to cut round tenons but this thing will cut uh, whatever tenon we want it cuts double tenons or single tenons and it it allows us to cut a perfectly fitted double tenon with a tape taper locking design that fits perfectly into a taper locking mortise. It takes 30 seconds to do a double tenon. Nice. That's, you know, and they're dead on. Right. Uh, As you can imagine, that's just a game changer.
0: That changes things a lot. And, And
1: every employee in the shop can do that Wow. on that machine. So, you know, one of the things that having employees has had impact that it has had on me is it has forced me to (laughs) develop the company in a way. And now with my wife, we're, we're developing the company together. She's my business partner, but uh, it forces me to think differently about how to proceed through a project. And in fact, uh, I've recently completely uh, stopped offering the traditional ladder backs that I used to make because that chair was not designed for the company that we are now. A product needs to be designed, whatever, whether it's something you're making in your shop or something you're designing for mass production, it needs to be designed with consideration of what infrastructure its production is going to be going through. Right, right, right. And as our infrastructure changes, designs can change. And certainly with the new tenon cutter and some other things, uh, mortising techniques that I've developed, our ability to make things and now my ability to design uh, is not very limited but it, but it's certainly directed by the requirement of whatever that creativity is chewing on it has to be developed into something that anybody in the shop can make right, right. so the current chair that i'm making now we're calling chio uh, which is uh, latin for revive or renew and the idea being that it's a renewal of a ladderback form it's got five uh, slats in it, and I wanted to improve that. And so now, with our mortising and tenoning uh, techniques, I thought let's make it as comfortable as possible. And that meant bending the slats in two planes, so they bend across the grain and along the grain, which I used to think was impossible, but it, it is possible. So they follow your your backbone perfectly. That means that they go into the leg into a curved mortise. Mm. And that curved mortise on the next set is going to be a taper locking curved mortise. But I don't think it's <laughs> going to take any, any longer than the, than the old chair. And then the, the leg is bent in a way that uh, it's 45 degrees to the main blank. And that required a big learning curve. But now we've got it down, and, and my assistant can bend them perfectly every time. Mm. Uh, and we've got a way of bandsawing the form of the leg before it's bent so that very little work is needed to be done after bending
0: now is this green or is this No,
1: it's all it's all dry wood Greenwood is only an advantage in uh a few situations i know peter Follinsby is really excited about uh, you know the the tables and the, the big joints in greenwood uh But even there, and and he will say this, there's not an advantage in greenwood joinery except for efficiency of production. If you want to use hand tools, Mm -hmm. Um, the, even the greenwood chair, I stopped making uh, quite a while ago when I learned, when I started studying what happens in a glue bond, what happens in a joint and our, our joinery is always stronger. If the glue is working as well as it can work and greenwood chair production doesn't really support that. And, when you can get a really strong glue bond, you don't get any advantage from the greenwood aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So as my work got more precise, I started focusing on more on how to get the maximum strength out of a glue bond in a joint. And that's why we've gone to, I think now we are well, with very few exceptions, we are making all of our joints uh, taper locking, Mm -hmm. which, which allows the, 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 the tenon itself tapers six degrees included, or three degrees on each side, and it goes into a mortise with a perfectly matching taper, so that it's loose until it gets almost home, and then it's tight, and so that it clamps the glue line like you clamp a tabletop glue line, hmm. and so you're not shoving the, the glue down to the bottom of the hole.
0: Right.
1: You can get a you can get a tighter joint or a better mechanical advantage and you get a much stronger glue bond over time and then with the double tenons we've got four nearly parallel glue lines really close to each other so you have a stabilizing effect on that whole area of the part kind of like plywood does Hmm. so the the strength of these joints is not just good and then of course you want a strong joint but it's so much stronger than a traditional mortise and tenon that it has design implications and all of these things that I've been talking about so far are exciting to me more in the design implications that they have than in the coolness or the better comfort or lighter weight or whatever that they have. So now I've I've been playing with, you know, the thinking, you know, and with chairs, you you always want to think about lightweight, maximum strength, best comfort you can get out of the material you're working with. And, I, you know, years and years ago, I, I was hearing about hemp plywood and, you know, the manufactured hemp fibers turning into structures that are similar to wood. I thought, wow, can you make a hemp chair? That'd be cool. <laughs> but this kind of, it's just, it's, I couldn't, nobody was making hemp lumber and I didn't know how to even conceive of that. So it's just been something nagging in the back of my mind. And then, you know, and this, this is just about, you know, the bandwidth spreading. And and what that does to your ability to think about design. But a few years ago I started incorporating carbon fiber and fiberglass concepts into furniture and just hate working with that material. I don't know if you've ever worked with it, Gary, but you try to drill a hole in and through a carbon fiber and then you throw the bit away. Oh. And, it's, and it's a nasty hole and then you're it's hard to not, even with a dust mask, to not get some of those fibers in your lungs and it's just there's nothing pretty about it. And then I was thinking, well, what about, you know, this is basically cloth. What's, what's the strongest plant fiber that we have that I could just use cloth instead of carbon fiber and Kevlar and, and fiberglass? And it turns out that now uh, there is available a, a composite material made from linen. And there's a, there's a company in San Francisco called Blackbird Guitar that's making really nice guitars out of linen composite. And, in fact, I started studying it, and linen composite was used 3,000 years ago by Alexander the Great's Army as body armor. No, For 1,000 years, that was the preferred material. So there was an a- animal glues of some type and then linen fiber, and then wow. arrows couldn't puncture you. So wow. that was pretty cool. And then I started reading more about it, and now they're using linen composite to replace carbon fiber in jet bodies, car bodies, motorcycles, Whoa. skis, boats, I mean, all kinds of places. It's, it's kind of hush-hush nobody's talking about it because it's, uh, it's it, pretty big advantages to it and yeah. it compares favorably to carbon fiber actually mm-hmm. and so this new Chio chair is using that to lighten the seat up so I can have an ultralight wooden seat that's flexible so when you sit on the chair on a floor that's not flat all four legs touch the ground and it's, it's really, it's the most exciting thing I've gotten into that I can remember. And, and the, the one thing that opens, other than, you know, the joinery that we're able to do, it's opening design potential in a way that is keeping me up at night.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, I have a question for you. Is it harder to design the furniture, the business, or to catch fish?
1: <laughs> fish are kind of dumb, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I wouldn't know that. But I have not had much time to fish, Lenny. That's the the big regret that I have about what this what's going on with the company. Right. But designing well, furniture and designing a business—if it's a furniture business—they're integrated because you know your business is designed to sell, and and in, in our case, produce and sell. And as a designer, the challenge is to design something that creates value at a a good rate as it moves through the shop. And that value is partly generated by how the marketing is done, but it's also generated by the way the public views the piece. And, of course, they're viewing the piece through our marketing efforts, but they're also viewing the piece, I think, even more so through their own filters, after looking online at all the slab tables and the mid century modern stuff that's out there, you know, putting something new in that in that noise is a serious challenge to succeed with because it, it really is just a lot of noise. And there's not in that noise a good way for a consumer to genuinely educate themselves about what the flip they're looking at. Particularly online, not being able to Sit
0: down, feel the peace, look at the, the workmanship.
1: Yeah, I don't know how we're going to get it, Gary, but I feel like what we need is what, what wine got. You know, wine, you know, in the 80s, wine was not as available as it is now, really good wine. There weren't as many wine stores, but it's really grown, and there's wine magazines that support that. And if you talk to your average consumer, they know more about wines than they did in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And and wine is cool. Learning about wine is cool. And I, I'm not sure how that happened, but I believe the you know wine aficionado and wine spectator and you know cooking shows all support that. And I think for the survival of the integrity of our craft, we're going to need something like that. And YouTube is certainly a good and, and this kind of thing is certainly a good part of that. But there's so much nonsense within it. I'm not sure we're getting what we need. Well, clearly, if we involved
0: alcohol with our furniture making, <laughs> I, I think that's the overlooked uh, quality of, of the uh, popularity of wine and wine collecting, it's that uh, alcohol content.
1: Well, you know so, they're having axe throwing now at bars, so maybe we should have table saw <laughs> lessons at bars as well.
0: <laughs> I, I tried my hand at axe axe throwing last summer at a, a timber framers conference. They uh, they had invited me out, and uh, it's uh, it's harder than it looks. <laughs> it's harder than it looks, and quite dangerous. Quite quite dangerous. Forgetting about engineering, if you can, just for a moment. Do you go out on a hike? To get inspiration, is it our ideas just coming to you all night long? Uh, is there a source, a font that you go back I can't
1: draw to? All fast enough, Gary.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, what's happening? And I and I think it's just what I was talking about before. The more the the, lo- the more I go into, and the longer I stay in this place of always asking questions, and you know, I'm, I'm asked There's I'm not asking questions to a person or to a book or researching in the library for answers. I'm asking questions just to the universe or to the, to the chair I'm working with about, you know, what's the best way to think about this? And I've been asking those same questions for decades. Right. Uh-huh. And what I'm learning in the process is creating access to more information. In, and I really like the term broadening my bandwidth. And so, you know, I I really believe that ideas are not something that we generate. Ideas are something that do come to us. And there's just no way that I've got enough information or anything to generate a new idea. I do feel like they're given to me. I think really good ideas come to someone who's genuinely asking for them Uh and has also built a foundation upon which those ideas can grow. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know how to do woodworking, you're not going to get any ideas about how to build a wooden chair or a wooden table. If you're a really good cook or a master chef, you're going to be getting a lot of new ideas because you're constantly churning the soup of that of that right. craft so that there's a lot more place for ideas to land on. And specifically within woodworking, you know, my passion is with is now and has always been mostly with chair design. And because I think about that a lot, ideas start to kind of uh, grow themselves. It's like if you leave a glass of water, you know, out on the table, eventually shit's going to grow in there. (laughs) But the the glass has to be open at the top. Right. You know, and if you you hold yourself open like a glass of water, you know, stuff's going to come in. And what's going to land and grow and find root is what can find a foundation of understanding to land on. And that's why I think it's so important What I was saying earlier about understanding the material and the tools and how they interrelate and building that foundation of understanding and hopefully eventually mastery. Then you can have a place for really valid ideas to land on instead of just throwing darts at the wall blindfolded. And trying to come up with ideas that have nothing to do with how wood is.
0: How much do you do you feel that the psychology of of our human race enters into their experience of a chair? It seems like a symbolic piece, piece. Oh my God,
1: of- that's such a great question, Gary, and I and it it's everything, and it it can be. Uh, you know, I've had wonderful experiences with. Uh, people that come into our gallery who can just see what they're looking at. I've also had people that come in our gallery and think that I'm making mid century modern furniture, right? Because that's the filter that they look at furniture from, because that's what they're following online. Right. And so they're not able to see what they're looking at. So that's definitely what the psychology is doing there. You know, and some people who, well, the people that really tend to get our work and the people that are patrons of our work are by and large art patrons anyway. And so they are looking at what we're doing through their filter of love of art. Right. That's, you know, when, when people are coming to the gallery that, that have that going on in their psychology, it, it's a wonderful visit. Whether they buy the pieces or not, they certainly are understanding what they're looking at, but you know, a lot of our comp, it used to be 40%. I think it's gone down just because our company has grown, but a large percentage of our client base either is woodworkers or has a woodworker in the family or has a passion for woodworking that doesn't really show up in their, their physical activity, but they've learned a little bit about it in some way. And can understand what they're looking at here and what I'm talking about here. Without that, you know, it's it's like, you know, <clears throat> well, just for fun, last night we went to a BMW party at our one of our favorite restaurants here. They have an outdoor space, and BMW there was with uh, their their new vehicles. And you know, I'm looking at this ninety thousand dollar SUV. I'm not shopping for a $90,000, but you know, it, it's there to to look at and sit in and honk the horn and all that. Sure. And it was a beautiful thing. Absolutely flipping gorgeous. But I have no way to understand that vehicle as having a $90,000 value. And I appreciate things well made, but to know that, I have to understand something about cars in order to appreciate everything about, you know, not just the bells and whistles of it, but why it's that much more than a Toyota Camry? Right.
0: Well, people ask that question of of custom furniture makers. You know, why is it so? They expensive? sure do. They sure do. It's so expensive. And um, I I don't know about you. My my feeling is that I don't have the time or energy to educate the world on this. Um, there are some people who get it, who understand the value of quality, and some people. It's. It never enters their mind. Quality is not an issue. It's unfortunate. There it is.
1: Well, sir, you know, the furniture that most people are looking at is made from the perspective of the factory. And it has to move through the factory at a rate to come out at the end of the deal uh, and retail for um, 10 times the cost of manufacturing and still be competitive. Right. And that's going to limit... Everything that the manufacturer and designer think about in terms of how the piece is detailed, how the piece is joined, how the piece is fitted, and what material it's made out of. When you start from the perspective of how can I make the best chair I can possibly make or the best table I can possibly make, you're already taking yourself out of that competition.
0: Right.
1: You can make a piece that the factories can't touch from a quality or aesthetic or a comfort standpoint you're not playing the same game at all. And and I don't know, I guess there are cars in the world, maybe Bentleys that are that are made from a similar perspective. But anything made from that perspective is not going to be able to be priced even in the same ballpark as manufactured stuff that's one made in mass, but more importantly, designed to go quickly through the plant.
0: For me, it seems that there's, there's a value to quality. There's a value to quality work. And surrounding oneself with it in your life makes a difference now i I can't afford a ninety thousand dollar SUV but as you say i uh, you can appreciate it. People can afford uh, pieces of furniture that are well made and it does um, I think it makes a difference if you surround yourself with objects in your life that uh, that you can feel that that sense that infusion of of effort and Inspiration and and uh, your work certainly has that. Um, I know that your um, three-slat ladder back chair is the. What's the right way to put this? It is. It is you. I look at that chair and I see you, Brian. I see that in that chair. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, not just from a from the standpoint of quality, but it's it's bearing and its um, strength and leanness and all those, all those things. And so it's, it's quite a remarkable piece and you've put together quite a remarkable collection. Tell us your website address,
1: please. Uh, you can just Google Brian Boggs and get there, but it's Brian and, okay. and you'll see something. I think, you know, I think you articulated pretty well, what what my chairs are a, a about. I think that one of the things that is important to me is that that what you just talked about is palpable. And I call it soul, but it's everything that we put into the piece to give it life, not just presence.
0: Right.
1: And when you, you know, getting back to what you said about surrounding yourself with stuff like that and the impact that it has, we've got enough of, enough of uh, this level of work in our house, whether it's a coffee cu- cup or uh, you know some of our furniture or another art piece that someone has done for us. I notice. Well, I'm attuned to that experience because I am a craftsman. I am an artist. And I think all artists and craftsmen just cultivate that awareness of the form of something. And I think that in homes where people surround themselves with factory-made, relatively inexpensive objects and it's everywhere, then you cultivate the practice of ignoring that because there's nothing there to excite you when you look at it. But if you cultivate instead, you know, go to some craft shows, buy directly from craftspeople, maybe it's just a a mug, but start looking at the detail of that and what the craftsperson cared about that, uh, you know, that's what I want to start my day with. Right. And I like connecting to that craftsperson. And this is talked about a lot, but I think that when you have a volume of that in your home, and especially if it's furniture because it's out in the middle of the space, It impacts your emotional, psychological and physiological experience of walking through the room Mm -hmm. because it's like walking through the room full of friends instead of walking through a room full of strangers. Right. Well put. Well put. And that's the experience that that's worth staying in this for. You know, we I've made a lot of sacrifices to get where I am and I'm where I am is still making sacrifices. And, you know, we kill trees to do this. So it's got to have a reason, you know, and, and I focus on chairs. So it's, you know, I'm not just getting people's butt off the floor. That's done. That's taken care of. There's plenty of chairs out there. Sure. So I, I need to have a reason for killing more trees just to have fun. And that is the reason is that it, it puts a soul in the homes of people who are looking for a richer experience of living. Great. So is there
0: a way that people can come and visit you?
1: Come can- see us. You know, we have a shop tour every day at 3 o'clock. It's open to the public. It's $10 a head. One of our craftsmen or, or, or one of our administrators will tour you around the shop, show you what we're doing, how we're doing it, explain the machines that I've built or that we, you know, some of the old iron that we work with. Uh, we want to make what we're doing accessible to as many people as possible, whether you're going to be a client or not.
0: And we have a gallery
1: that's open to the public too is here, and we like the pe- people to come to that. In, in some ways, especially if they don't have the means to buy this stuff, it's our way of letting you experience it and hopefully be inspired by it. Great,
0: Brian. I want to thank you very much. This was fascinating for me, as always, to, to chat with you. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, it's been great talking to you. It's been a pleasure.
0: This has been Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Please check out our website, northwestwoodworking.com, and check out our podcast again. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye.